Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your weekend was good. Hope you stayed warm. For many of us in the Twin Cities area, it was a cold one. I think it was 20 below this morning when I woke up, which is way too cold. But I think it's going to warm up uh, from what I hear about July. So that's going to be something to look forward to. I have a wonderful show. I'm very excited about my first guest. It's my first time having him on the show. I'll bring him on in just a minute. His name is Dr. Tim Timothy Tennant, and he is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary and professor of world Christianity. He's got an amazing resume, and he's written a new book that I'm going to introduce in just a second, and then the Monday afternoon mix will happen after that. And then we got lots ahead in second hour as well. So let me get started with uh, Tim. He, um, the church f- f- has certainly struggled to respond to the challenges like abortion and the rise of, of, of porn, same-sex marriage, and especially gender reassignment. So Tim's written, written a new book called For the Body. It's called Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. Thank you. I, your resume is amazing. So my first question is, what did God say to you, and at what age? <laughs> well, pretty early on, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the Lord because... spoke to me in a, a high school youth group and uh, turned me around and brought me to Himself uh, quite early. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, t- uh, tell me where you grew up, and I want to just get to know a little bit about you. You don't just kind of rise to be the president of a seminary, and you know, I'm just so interested in knowing you personally a little bit better. Well, thank you, Bill. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in a Methodist church in Atlanta, and I came to the Lord through a Baptist layperson who had a Bible study in his home who brought the gospel to me in a beautiful way, and I eventually was called into the ministry, and I served as a pastor for almost 10 years, and then I went uh, off, did my uh, master's and doctoral work, I taught for some time at uh, Tocqueville Falls College in Georgia, and then eventually uh, 11 years at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in uh, the Boston area. I also had uh, probably 30, 35 years of work uh, in North India, working to help us start a um, Bible college there. I went back and forth between the U.S. and India. And then eventually, in 2009, I became the president of Asbury Seminary. I've been here for 12 years. So that's a brief overview, but mostly in uh, pastoral work and theological education here and abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just ask some of my dumb questions up front, Tim. You you were a really good student, weren't you? I was. I was. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> See, I knew that was a dumb question because I knew the answer in advance. <laughs> That's right. But you, you have a great acting uh, background, so I'm afraid I can't match you on that one. <laughs> but you obviously, God has given you these gifts of uh, the ability to be a good student and the intellect and everything else. And the book you've written that we're going to talk about today is really interesting. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a little book that wasn't the one I thought I would write because it's not the normal things I've written about. But in this case, I felt like it was a book that needed to be written. Yeah. So I want to talk about the book For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. So maybe we can just start with what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, Bill, this is one of those amazing phrases of Scripture that uh, that doesn't actually it's not actually defined, and so we we learn from the context of how it's used in Genesis that clearly it's about us uh, having dominion that we are meant to be like co-regents with God in the world. It's about our being, uh, you know, uh, reproducing and and through marriage. That's the first thing actually says after that we're creating His image is to be fruitful, multiply. That we are to represent Him in various ways in the world, and so it's one of these elusive concepts which is introduced very strongly in Genesis, and then the Bible goes silent, and the term is never used from after Genesis all the way through to the New Testament, where mm-hmm. it just bursts back on the scene with, uh, of course, Christ in the image of God is reintroduced in uh, you know, Colossians and Hebrews and Romans, etc. So it's just an amazing concept that is so important in the early part of the Bible, and then it's never mentioned until it appears once again in the New Testament. And of course, now we see it's perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ and who He is. Uh, lovely answer. Thank you so much for that. In the start of your book, Tim, you talk about our bodies are talking to us. And it, you, you say it provides, you, your book provides the basic overview of a positive Christian understanding of the body. Can you give us more on that? Yeah, that's a great point. I, I I felt like that the modern world kind of views the body as basically a biological category, right? We have the, the body in biological terms, but the the church, the, this church in Scripture sees the body. Of course, it's never less than that, but it's also deeper than that. It is a theological category, and so the book is really trying to explore what it means to look at the body theologically. And I, I use the phrase, it's a, it's a popular book, so I'm saying the body is talking to us. Are we are we listening to the body? Are we are we hearing its message? Because when I look back at the last, um, you mentioned several at the start of the show, but my life in, uh, in the 60s, you know, the Woodstock brought us the sexual revolution. In the 70s, it was Roe versus Wade, and that we thought about abortion. And then we had the rise of adultery and broken homes in the 80s. And Folks in the family came along, et cetera, and the rise of pornography and video games. And you go all the way down the line, Dr. Suicide, you know, sexual advertising, gender assignment, et cetera. Every decade, it seems like there was another challenge. And it dawned on me at some point that, in fact, we weren't fighting 15 battles. It was actually all about the body. And we lost a theology of the body. And so this is really the root behind really decades of things the church has found itself basically on the back heels, not knowing how to respond to. That's kind of a scary thought, that the church doesn't know how to respond to this, because the crisis is now. It is. I think we've responded uh, pretty well in communicating to the world that we're against a lot of things, Mm -hmm. but that's not the same as saying, what are you for? I think we've lost the positive vision. I think most of the world knows that we're against, you know, first person killing video games or doctor such as suicide or whatever. But I think we have to go beyond that and say, well, why do we have a Christian view of marriage? Why do we have, I mean, what is the, the animating vision behind uh, a more positive Christian message? And that's where I think really is, it starts with a theology of the body. Mm-hmm. Tim, how are we doing on engaging in these 
discussions uh, on human sexuality with uh, in churches today? That's kind of a broad question, but I know you've answered in part in, a little of it in part, but do say more. I do think that we uh, we are on our back heels. I think we probably have underestimated the strong. A formation that happens in the broader culture to our young people. So just because you grow up in a church that's an evangelical church, Bible-believing, doesn't mean that you'd be formed by around Christian values. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll, I'll hand it to our young people. They're not satisfied, nor should they be, right, by the church just saying, you know, we're against this, we're against that. They want to know why. Because for them, it's not just a you know, a doctrinal position. This is about people they know. It's about their relationships. It's things on social media. And so I think we need to, we owe it to the church to uh, do a better job. So discipleship has been uh, lacking, to say the least, in the church. And so I think we really have a lot of work to do to rebuild a real proper, robust uh, church today that can respond to the challenges that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Tim, talk about the physical body as an icon of God's grace. Yes, and the the whole book is designed around what I call four interlocking uh, visions of the body. And one is the created body, one is the related body, one is the sacramental body, and one is the disciple body. And what you've raised is actually the first of the four, which is the created body. And I I actually point out that if you think about the means of grace in our lives, like how does God communicate grace to us? The church has often used the phrase, the means of grace, referring to things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and, you know, serving the poor or reading the Bible and prayer and fasting, all of these things. But if you think about it, every one of those things happens in and through the body. You know, the body is baptized. The body takes Eucharist. You know, you hear the Word of God preached through your ears. You you serve the poor with your feet. Every means by which God meets us with His grace is actually conveyed to us through the body. And so, we believe the body is a very, very important bridge to the grace of God. And if you don't have a theological view of the body, then you'll completely miss the, the ways that God has designed our bodies to receive uh, His grace. And, of course, ultimately I point to the fact that at creation itself, God was already preparing uh, us for His future incarnation, because Jesus, of course, quotes Psalm 40 and says, A body you have prepared for me. So our bodies were designed at creation knowing that someday he would send his son into the world and, and would inhabit a body. And so our bodies have enormous significance to pointing to not only the grace of God in ordinary church life, but ultimately Christ himself coming into the world. Mm-hmm. When we have discussions about human sexuality and we hear expressions like, I was born this way or God made me this way, how, how do you respond? Well, we, of course, believe that we live in a fallen world, and uh, the the early church, going back to um, Venerable Bede and Augustine and others, identified uh, what they called the four marks of the fall, and one of those is uh, what what they called concupiscence, which we would say today that would be called like uh, sexual variants or sexual deviations, things from God's plan. So we believe people are born with propensities that are uh, distorted from God's plan, and that's very different from referring to God's design or how God intended us to be in terms of how He created us. So we we acknowledge both the fall, but we also acknowledge God's plan. And those are two different things. And sometimes people assume that if you're born a certain way, it means that God made you that way. And that's not true. We, we're all born with actually 
sinful propensities. It's, it's called the fall. It's called the sin nature. And those sinful propensities must be addressed by redemption and transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, I'm going to go to break here in about two minutes. So I'm going to give you just a short amount of time. But would you uh, explain what transhumanism is in two minutes? Uh, transhumanism <laughs> is just so... Yeah, no, uh, it's the way the body's been extended, of course, in many good ways, where we take uh, technology to how we extend the body out, like with, um, you know, with, with uh, prosthetics, like an arm or a leg, but also how it's transcended in terms of digital media, various ways the body is transcended. So it's a really a large field, some okay. of which is very positive, some not, but it's a big field today. Okay. Dr. Timothy Tennant is my guest. We're chatting about his new book, For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. Certainly open to taking questions for Dr. Tennant. If you have one, let me know what they are, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Tenant, as my guest today, he's written a book called For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. What a topic this is. Uh, Tim, maybe we could talk again, if you would, about uh, about, for, ooh, for, about the de- the divine design for marriage. Yes, one of the uh, parts of the book is to say that the body serves as kind of an icon uh, or a pointer or a window into divine mysteries. And so, uh, the second interlocking uh, vision is the fact that we're related to other bodies, and of course, marriage is one of those. So, I think most people realize that the New Testament develops marriage as a pointer to Christ and the church. And so, we actually believe that part of the vision of marriage is that it would uh, mirror the spiritual mystery of Christ and His church. In fact, Paul kind of surprises us, doesn't he, in Ephesians 5 when he talks about marriage? He gets to the very end of that beautiful passage, and you think he's going to say, uh, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking about, you know, husband and wife. But instead, he says, I'm speaking about the mystery of Christ and His Church. And so, we recognize there is a design for marriage that actually points us to that deeper mystery of Christ and His Bride, uh, the Church. And you also, in your book, talk about uh, the family uh, being a reflection of the Trinity, which is God dwelling in community. Do say more about that, please. Yes. we. Uh, one of the other ways that we relate, of course, to other bodies is through the family unit. And so part of my um, concern is to see that when we're, we give birth to children, we're actually being invited into God's inner work. And one of the great prerogatives of God is to be the creator of the world and creator of everything. And so the fact that he gives us the privilege of becoming like little co-creators with him, you know, little C, obviously, he's the, he is the creator, but we become we're involved in this act of creation. And so we end up with this amazing uh, trinity of, you know, father, mother, and child, which is meant to reflect kind of the inner inner beauty and the inner love. And everyone who knows as children, there's a, a bond between father, mother, child, which is extremely powerful. And God said that's actually the best way to understand his own inner life is a triune God. So 
it is a deep mystery to think about how even our family is meant to reflect the very nature of God himself. Mm-hmm. Tim, on page 63 of your book, it says, Naked but not ashamed. You don't have to talk about that. It's just fun to say on Christian radio. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> talk about, if you would, the, the beauty of uh, singleness and friendship. Right. One of the things that I really try to bring out in the book is the importance of the recovery of both singleness and of friendships. Mm-hmm. And on the singleness side, I think that a lot of churches emphasize, uh, you know, marriage, the role of marriage, et cetera, which is beautiful. But a lot of people that are single feel like they're left out of that. And what we discover in the Scripture is there's actually two meanings of the body. You know, one is the spousal meaning, where we relate to each other through marriage. The other is the, you know, the celibate meaning of the body. And so we find that people are called to singleness which I actually believe is not a biblical term. It's actually the single-focused life is the phrase we should use. That single-focused life is already anticipating that future marriage where all of us, there'll be no more marriage in heaven, of course, mm-hmm. and we're married to Christ. And so singleness is meant to uh, already embody the future eschaton, the future realities of the new creation. And that's one of the beautiful things about Singleness, and of course, friendships have been on the decline for uh, for over a generation now. Same same gender friendships. So, we've been really trying to emphasize the importance of this. And the phrase, um, you know, blood runs thicker than water. I point out, which is today used to talk about family life and, and blood relations. The original phrase that came from was the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. It was actually to emphasize the amazing bond of friendships that were actually covenantal in the ancient world. Mm. And we have largely lost those deep, lifelong bonded friendships. And it's a really important part of our the recovery this book calls for. When you think about the time-honored tradition of same-sex friends uh, and how important they are and how meaningful they are throughout your life, it's hard to hear people say, well, I don't really have any friends anymore, or I, I've got so few friends, and that always makes me sad. I know. It's amazing because we live in such a connected uh, generation with social media, and it's one of the surprises of the social media is that we have a rise in connectivity, but a profound loss of connectedness in the personal, relational way. So people are profoundly lonely today, uh, suicide rates, et cetera, and yet we're digitally connected. So it does point to the power of embodiment. I think if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that we we realize despite all the technology and the wonders of technology, we still long for embodiment in ways that are very profound and deep within our, you know, who we are. Yeah, there's a certain level of loneliness right now that is uh, profound. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Tim, I'd love for you to talk about how our bodies are sacraments for the world. It's just such a a great title of of chapter six in your book, and I I would love for you to say more about that. Thank you. One of the uh, one of the driving points of that of that part of the book is to bring out this other vision, which is the sacramental body. And in that chapters, uh, those two chapters, I try to bring out first of all the fact that our We've underestimated the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and of the of baptism as being for us, you know, God's grace to us, when in fact, the sacraments are also meant to be uh, our being brought out into the world. And so I, I believe that um, when you're baptized, 
We're not simply baptized by faith. We're baptized into a faith. We're, it's a shared faith. And so we go out into the world as the baptized believers of God. And I, I tell the story um, about when Martin Luther was in uh, Marburg Castle in 1521. He uh, famously threw an inkwell at the devil uh, in his uh, moment of trial. And so you can actually go there and see the ink on the on the wall. But what I tell our students and our uh, my friends is say, you know, the real amazing thing is not the fact that Martin Luther threw an inkwell at the devil, but what he said when he threw the inkwell, because what he actually said was, I am baptized. That was the phrase he said. Hmm. And it was a way of saying to the devil, I am in the world as a baptized person, therefore, you know, get out of my way. And so we have this missional, you know, we go out into the world, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, we are his broken body in the world. We are his blood shed into the world. And therefore we represent that as a as missional agents in the world. And so this um this chapter really was trying to bring out what it meant to be the embodied people of God in the world because the gospel flows through bodies. We're the ones that share it. We're the ones that live it out. That's a sacramental pointer in our, our very lives. I know you talk about defining the word sacrament in your book, but would you be able to go over that again with my listeners? Yeah, sacrament is actually a word that's changed a lot over the years because the sacrament's an interesting word. It actually comes from two words. It's the word sacer, which means holy, and the Greek word, which is a Latin uh, root, and a Greek ending, the word mysterion, which means mystery. It means literally a holy mystery. So the church all the way through uh, into the 4th century had a much broader view of sacrament, meaning all the ways that God meets us in holy mystery. And over a lot of years and for a lot of reasons, the the word sacraments became identified, especially for Protestants, as two particular acts of Jesus, the Lord's Supper and the and uh, and baptism, but part of the book is to really broaden back out, not to not to uh, change that conversation, but just to say the word sacrament is is also a broader word to say we are God's you know holy mysteries in the world, and we should reclaim the the kind of mystery of human embodiment that creates uh, I think the proper use of the word sacrament, kind of in the broader use of the term, more ancient use of the term. Mm-hmm. Dr. Timothy Tennant is my guest. He is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. In other words, I got the big guy today, which makes me very happy. He's written a book called For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. If you have any questions you would like to ask uh, Dr. Tennant, you can go ahead and text me at 877-933-2484. Or if you've heard something you'd like some clarification on, I know he'd be delighted to do that. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
I'm back with Dr. Timothy Tennant. He's written a book called For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. Got this wonderful um, book on the body and sexuality. And this chapter 7 talks about the sacredness of ordinary tasks. And I love this because many of us, our death, he talks about, uh, when we're saying, are we willing to die for your faith? And Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15.31 says, I die every day. I begin to appreciate another aspect of dying for your faith. For many of us, our death comes in embracing the menial, practical areas of life each and every day. Daily, we are asked to deny ourselves and take up our cross in service to others, becoming martyrs over and over again for the cause of Christ and our love for the world who hates us. Oh, that's a really, I really love that, Tim. That's uh, very powerful. Thank you, Bill. Thank and I, you. And I would love for you to say more about the sacredness of ordinary tasks. Yeah, I jokingly tell people that the book uh, begins with uh, God creating the world and it ends with uh, changing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I do think it is trying to show the comprehensive nature of uh, of the, body, the, the, the whole theology of the body. And so part of the concern in this uh this is also part of the sacramental vision is that there's a there's a, a a beautiful sacramental part of ordinary life we think about the tasks that make up the rhythms of life washing dishes folding clothes you know cleaning out gutters uh, mowing grass you know preparing meals whatever changing diapers of course all these things are part of the ordinary we call quotidian task and there's a lot of great work being done about the um how we see that theologically in the rhythms, almost liturgical rhythms of daily life. So part of this is to really see how I I take the sacramental words, uh, this is my body given for you, and say this is actually, you know, we think of this at the heart of the mystery of redemption, but that those phrases of Jesus, this is my body given for you, actually is reflected in the dailiness of our lives as we give our give ourselves to our spouse, to our friends, to those in need. Uh, that we try to um, to live this out. And I, I think it really does help cut at the heart of so many problems in our culture, which, you know, only values, for example, um, financially compensated work, you know, so we don't value roles like friend and father and mother and the ways that spouses serve each other. But these are really important tasks, which we want to, uh, you know, bring life back to and the, the meaning of life and not simply those who are in ordained ministry or those are in callings that we regard as sacred callings. Well, we always identify with one another based on what we do. So what do you do for a living? That's kind of how we start. We usually don't say, well, I'm a, I'm a dad and a friend and a brother. We usually start with what our jobs are. Absolutely. It's a huge challenge because the whole people of God are called by God to represent Him in the world as His ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5.20. And here we have a situation where we have lost the value of working like homemaking and caring for children and for even things like mowing grass, cleaning gutters. All those things are important. In fact, even if you become very wealthy, those tasks don't go away. We simply pay others to do them for us. Those are tasks that have to be done. And so it really is important to recognize that we can't evade these tasks. We have to embrace them as Christians. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, right? It's your act of worship. We think of worship in the church, but it's actually worship is our bodies being laid as daily sacrifices 
before the Lord. He said, this is your spiritual act of worship. Mm-hmm. Tim, this next uh, subject is kind of a, a difficult one, but the objectification of bodies right now in the world, I've, it's probably been, it's worse now than it's ever been, be my guess. I know, uh, Bill. I, I really have uh, I felt for this one because this chapter deals a lot with some of the challenges of what's happened in art and media, how the bodies are, are uh, portrayed. And if you look at this, the data, doing surveys, the number one response when they ask uh, women, what would you, even young women, what would you change about yourself? It's, it's number one response is weight. Hmm. And a lot of it has to do with how bodies are portrayed. And from the earliest age, young children go through you know, the line of the grocery store and they see these images on the front of magazines and so forth. And they, they get the message pretty early on. And we have data to show this that very early on, I should look like that. That's what, and so it creates self-loathing. It creates shame. And even these, these images are themselves photoshopped. And so even they are not good enough, you know, so it's a very tragic thing that these images are put out there. The church doesn't talk about it much, but in fact, we're not talking about just pornographic, but actually just daily images on billboards, the, um, you know, the Super Bowl commercials or whatever, these are all portraying the body in certain ways, which often separate the body, the outer body, the physical body from the inner spiritual life. And it's, it's a matter of great concern in the book. And Tim, the outcome for men and women are quite different. You talk about it uh, regarding media and the body, that for, for men, images of the body are used frequent, frequently to incite lust. For women, they tend to promote self-loathing. That's true. Uh, it's not completely divided male and female, but it certainly is predominant that these images produce self-loathing in women. Uh, a lot of women go through self-shaming about their bodies, uh, though it's true for men as well. But on the male side, uh, often men predominate in the area of, of lust. Of course, pornography is a problem for men and women, but it certainly predominates among men. And so those are real uh, destructive forces. I think we haven't really addressed it enough in the church in terms of the power of these images mm. and that what they do in our lives when we, um, you know, we create, uh, especially the power of the digital world, which is put access to these images uh, from the youngest age. Well, it- Many have been lured in by it, and then they've been stung by it. You've got all these things that you see in everyday uh, media, like get perfect skin, gorgeous hair, feed your cravings, lose your weight, sexiest body ever, get your beach body ready. I mean, how many how many times can you hear this and you start to go, wow, things aren't going that well for me? Absolutely. I mean, again, we have data to show that uh, adolescent girls who see, and you're, you mentioned uh, covers of, in those cases, that was the covers from uh, from the Kremlin uh, magazine, yeah. but they clearly are, these are actual cover titles that communicate young people that my face is not shaped right, my body is too fat, if I look like that, I'd be desirable, et cetera, and it's extremely um, challenging, and we can't view it as, as a um, uh, inconsequential uh, sports in our society. It's a form of formation. I actually call it the disincarnation of the body because it actually separates a person from their inner life. And that, of course, is um, a tragedy because we know that the inner life is so crucial to the Christian vision of the body. Mm-hmm. What would be your counsel, Tim, when, there, when you meet someone who is suffering from some of this self-loathing 
I mean, it's it's probably the easiest thing to say would be turn off the TV and shut down the internet for a while, but maybe that's hard for a lot of people to do. Right. I think we have to, again, that's, that's one way, but I think the positive way is to also just communicate really clearly that we are beloved by God because we are created in His image, and He has loved us, and He has called us into His purposes. And ultimately, if people have an inner purpose in their life, they realize they're redeemed by God, they actually no longer see themselves as ugly or fat or whatever. They actually see themselves uh, in different ways, look in the mirror differently. So the inner life is important to address that and nurture that. Uh, we obviously want to shield our children from uh, images that are destructive, and you have to obviously uh, limit access to sites, and all those things have to be done. But the more positive work is the work that really must be done in terms of from the very earliest age, explaining to your children and helping them to see that the real beauty is who they are before God. Mm-hmm. As we stay in your chapter on the objectified body, we're now in a cultural debate for sure on the issues that we face regarding same-sex marriage and gender reassignment. I'd love for you to say more about both. Yeah, of course, our hearts go out to people who are in these situations, and I think that it's important to recognize that we do believe that there's various forms of disordered um sexuality and also loathing the body, which causes them to change their gender. It's it's very, very tragic. So part of our goal in this is to help the church really see what the Bible teaches about this. What does God say about this? And there's, of course, a movement today to look at um, words in the New Testament, for example, and say this is about abusive sex or non-consensual rape or pedophilia, etc. But the New Testament time was very, very uh, acquainted with all kinds of sexual activity, and they had words for all of these acts. And so there's, it's clear the New Testament does, in fact, um, you know, uh, tell us that God's vision for uh, human marriage is not satisfied through same-sex marriage because we're meant to be fruitful multiply. We're meant to be two others coming together as one, as Christ and the Church. All those aspects of marriage are not fulfilled in the ways that um, the culture is now pursuing. And of course, your body, your biological body is part of the image of God in you. And it's, so we're trying to re, reframe this by looking just openly at what the scriptures say and try to give people guidance based on the actual teaching of scripture and why we should listen to, the, uh, to God's word on these matters. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of sexual brokenness, isn't there, Tim? There is. There really is. And that's something that we, the church, of course, has to address this from a very early age. I sometimes think of the transgender movement, and for some younger kids, you become kind of the new hip thing to do, and you're all of a sudden kind of quickly the most interesting and untouchable person because you can't criticize, you can't say anything negative, you can't say, boy, is there a deeper issue I can help you with? Uh, they become almost instant celebrities. I know. There's no question. There's a huge cultural wave here. And I think, I think it really comes down for Christians, I think. And what is, you know, does, does uh, is our bodies determined by sociology or by biology? You know, do we, if we have socially constructed uh, genders, for example, that are not based on our biology, but by our social construct, and it really raises a lot of questions that are very serious about, you know, race, for example. We're very concerned about racial 
uh, issues in our country. But what, what would keep someone from saying that they are, you know, black inside or Native American inside or whatever, rather than recognizing the, the importance of biology in human embodiment and the, the image of God? So, yeah, they, these have a lot of important considerations. And the, the culture, of course, is totally disconnected from these theological truths. And if the church doesn't embody it, then they will not hear it. Mm-hmm. I've heard this, Tim, from a number of Christians that would say, I'm a born-again Christian, but I affirm gay marriage. Well, of course, the the, church, the faith is not something that we can um, you know, dictate, is it? We have to uh, be recipients of revelation, and uh, Christianity is not something that we can say we started last Tuesday, thankfully. Uh, it's something that has been uh, given to us. We and the, the, the phrase that the New Testament uses, is, you know, Paul says, what I received, I pass on, right? Uh, Jude calls this the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So we're looking at revelation that's been given to us, and then our job is to receive it and pass it on. And so I'm very wary, not just on this issue, but hundreds of issues where the church wants to reshape a divine revelation into what we think is culturally compatible. And in the day, we have to accept the fact that we're in a clearly a post-Christian environment where we have to be much more willing just to say we disagree with the culture and try to love them and, and try as much as possible to embody a, a striking alternative to the, the world. Mm-hmm. Dr. Timothy Tennant is my guest and his book is called For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. We'll take a short break. If you've got a question for Dr. Tennant, let me know what it is. My guest, he's written a book called For the Body, Rediscovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. Um, I want to ask you about hate speech. If you would mention, if you would talk about that a little bit, Tim. Yes, great question. Uh, I think we have to distinguish between a position and a posture. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, I think Christians have positions on various things that people may or may not find offensive, but a posture can be, you know, you can communicate that position in a way that's uh, dismissive, that's uh, that's even hate-filled or, or whatever. And I think that it's important to recognize that the Christian positions uh, are very different from postures. So if you have an ironic spirit, a, a loving spirit, and yet you uh, affirm something which some may not like, they may say that you're involved in hate speech, when actually, actually you're just affirming a Christian position. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, that position, posture, dynamic, I think is important distinction in today's world, because sometimes people confuse a position and think that it, by virtue of the position, it is a hateful statement. And that is not a culture of free speech where we can actually have a real robust dialogue about a very important issues in our day. Yeah, it feels like it's very difficult to have uh, an argument or a discussion when there's uh, so much emotion on both sides. 
Absolutely. And the, the Scottish philosopher, uh, Alistair McIntyre, calls this uh, emotivism, where, you know, we just are left with, like, shouting at each other. Yeah. And he, he argues that one of the biggest signs of our, you know, kind of late modernity is the we've lost the ability, ability to make an argument, you know. So part of our concern is that we can actually make an argument, meaning making a case for something and have a respectful conversation about it and not uh, devolve into just a shouting match, which doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Tim, is it safe to say that we all as believers uh, can improve our our foundational understanding of these topics and and be better prepared through discipleship to address these issues in the church? Absolutely. That's part of my concern is that if you have a confidence in the biblical theological basis for these things, then you can respond with calmness and assurance. But when you really don't have a good basis, you don't know the positive vision, you often respond with emotion and anger. And and we just really need to get to a much more confident. The church has so much reason to be confident of the biblical revelation, and we don't need to be in a position of uh, being fearful or being angry with anybody, because our whole point is to love the world and to embody and to reflect God's redemptive purposes for the whole world. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love your chapter 11 when you're talking about the building blocks of a theology of the body. You've got uh, some incredible points you've made. For example, creation is good and our bodies are trustworthy. God create, created us with a joyful union of body and spirit because the goodness of creation flows out of the very nature and character of God. He created order the created order has inherent moral boundaries. Therefore, our bodies embody moral agency. And you go on and on. It's just wonderful stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I, I actually think that uh, there is quite a few books in recent years, mostly from Roman Catholics, about how we view the body. But I thought like this book, one of the ways I think uh, this book is helpful is it does lay out seven building blocks. And, you know, it's not that there's not many others, but it just says these are the seven most important things that the church should communicate to their people when they train people and uh, when they disciple people. And so we do need uh, these basic building blocks. I know. I'd love to just talk a, a couple more. I, I don't mean to read your material and embarrass you with uh, being on the program here, but uh, God created and fashioned our material bodies in our image of God, and they are icons once foreshadowing and now recalling the incarnation and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our bodies have a, a redemptive future, don't they? Absolutely. I love the the word icon, of course, is a word that is um, used in much of the church. and Others don't know the word, but an icon was never actually meant to be a just a like a painting of Jesus or something. An icon was always viewed as a window to a spiritual reality. So the word icon is used there. You can just as easily use the word window, that your body is meant to be a window into a deeper reality. So the visible is to make clear the invisible. You know, the the earthly make clear the heavenly. You know, the human body makes clear the divine life. You know, the temporal makes clear the eternal. That's the whole point of this, is to show how the body is God speaking to us and helping us to see some of his beautiful divine mysteries that he longs for us to see, That why he's redeeming the world and how he's redeeming the world. Mm-hmm. I love this one too, Tim. The physical body is a beacon or sign to the world of God's presence and redemptive purposes in the world. Our bodies are mobile temples with a missional presence in the world. 
the sacraments are not merely for us. They are given to us that we might sacramentally embody new creation in the present order as missional witnesses of the church to the world. That is powerful. Yes, thank you. Well, the creation account in Genesis uh, portrays the whole of creation as God's temple. And so the fact that the human body is like a microcosm of that, that we are God's mobile temple. And I like to define the church as the, uh, you know, the outpost of the new creation in Adam's fallen world. And so we are meant to embody the future realities of what God is calling the world to in the present. If the, if the world doesn't see it in the church, they won't look upward and ask God for redemption. But if we can model it, they will be so drawn to it because the world longs for redemption. They long for liberation from sin, but they just simply can't see it unless we embody it. And Tim, if our bodies are mobile temples that are with a missional presence in the world, we should be celebrating. We should be joyful despite our aches and pains and the things we don't like about our bodies or what we see in the media that is conflicting with what we see in the mirror. Absolutely. Our bodies are reflections of God's temple. And of course, Paul does say that you know, bodily exercise has some uh, benefit, has benefit. He says godliness has more, but it's important to take care of our bodies. And, and we don't deny, this book doesn't deny that. We we believe in uh, you know, good stewardship of our bodies and watch what we eat. All that's important. But ultimately, uh, the kind of ways this has been brought into modern culture tends to block out the spiritual side of your body. And we're trying to recover that. This book is a recovery of that which is lost, which is the spiritual dimension and the redemptive purposes of your body. And you're right. Everybody is a mobile temple one, not just the ones that the world thinks are beautiful. <laughs> right. That's so, that's so important. And I, I, I want to return to this, Tim, because I just really love this point you made about the, the daily tasks and duties of life serve as sacramental markers of God's presence embodied in the whole of life. How important our daily, ordinary things are. Absolutely. We, we, the gospel must be embodied in the whole of life. And one of the other tensions I mentioned in that chapter is the, the separation between the secular and the sacred. This goes back to the Enlightenment, and it's been one of the false separations which uh, the Church has to come back to at this point and readdress, which is that that, that distinction is not there. But the whole of life has been imbued with sacredness because God has created us and he's called us to reflect his glory. And I love that you say that the body is good and trustworthy. I think everyone <laughs> needs to hear that right now. It, it's a, you know, that we're image bearers as male and female in the world created by God. These are, th- this is an amazing uh, reminder. Absolutely. And I, I love the fact that uh, part of the trustworthiness of the body is related to the trustworthiness of creation, which makes science possible. If you actually lose your trust in creation, you lose the whole basis for science and scientific inquiry. So all this concern about trusting science really does come down to whether we trust the created order, because it has to be predictable and reflect God's orderliness. If it doesn't, then we are left only with chaos. Mm-hmm. And just the whole sacramental nature of the body is just such a powerful reminder because we are designed to be bare images of God, and we just yes, need I to just be... Yes, I just love the fact... Yeah. 
Yeah, I love how you use the word design. I mean, that, that is such an important word that yes. God designed our bodies. It's not something that has happened through, you know, evolutionary chance, but we're actually the products of God's design. Yeah. Tim, you're so, so amazing to take uh, extra time with me today to talk about uh, your book. This has really been wonderful. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Bill. It's been an honor, and I've enjoyed talking to you, and hopefully yeah. your guests found this helpful. Oh, I got my text line lighting up. Now, before I let you go, as the president of the seminary, uh, you got to talk to Bill Arnold to get him to come on my show. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that makes you me... need to have Bill I... Arnold talking to Bill Arnold. Thank you so much. <laughs> Finally, I get someone that agrees with me. I've reached out to him a couple times, but I can't get a response yet. And I, I've had Craig Keener on the show a number of times, and Craig is wonderful, of course. Uh, but I can't. Yes. But my goal is to get Bill Arnold on. Okay, well, I'll do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, God bless you. Have a great night. Dr. Timothy Tennant's been my guest. Yep, and the book is called For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.